0: the journey with me Hannah Byrne. I apologise in advance for the croaky voice I've had on to and then went to a protest against the arms fair in Liverpool on Saturday and then went to a gig on Saturday night with the amazing Jamie Webster. Please go and listen to his album We Get By and the singing and shouting has just made the voice a lot worse so it's only for the intro so I know you won't mind. This episode is with my lovely friend Rona, who is one of the most wise people I think I've ever met. The stories he tells and the the way he tells stories is just magical. Sometimes I felt like I I forgot that I was recording a podcast because I was getting so mesmerised by what he was saying. So I really hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as I do. We discuss everything from yoga to spirituality. He shares many different stories. We do touch a little bit about abuse of power in the yoga community, so just a little trigger warning for anyone that has experienced that. I will write in the show notes the timestamp if you do want to skip over that point. There's also a point about halfway through that we lost connection and we had to start again, so the conversation about one thing kind of finishes and we jump in straight into another, so if it kind of doesn't make any sense, that is why. (laughs) Well, let us let us get straight into the episode and introduce you to my wonderful friend Ronash. So welcome to the podcast. My wonderful friend, fellow yoga teacher, Ronash. We when did we meet? Was was it maybe like three or four years ago?
1: At least, at least. And it was possibly in one of or oh, more than likely in one of your classes, right? So it yes. would have been uh... You, you never used to teach aerial you taught other classes didn't you and i'm convinced yeah. it was one of the other classes but as to what the yeah. class was god knows i don't know No, about.
0: i can't remember either it was very long time ago well, a lot's happened since then
1: well that's a good sign it means it wasn't um, a bad meeting was it you know because you know exactly. you really remember about stuff
0: yeah i feel like i've just always known you you've always been there which is nice
1: yes that is um, a kind of yeah
0: yeah so we, we met in Liverpool Yoga Studios where Ronak is now teaching, which is very exciting. Really? <laughs> More enthusiasm, please. Um, so do you want to give us like, a little introduction about yourself for anyone who is listening, who doesn't know you?
1: Um, yes, I can. I mean, it's, it's weird to always introduce yourself, isn't it? Um, obviously, you can start with my name, Ronak. It's an unusual name. People often wonder where it's from. Um, and the name reflects a reality, right? So the name is weird, and the person is likewise a bit weird. Uh, so, I mean, that, that's probably the best way to start my introduction. Um, born and bred in Nottingham, moved to Liverpool 21 years ago, goddamn, for university. And I've just never left, um, got married, had kids. Um, I can hear my wife pottering around in the background. Um, and uh, I've, I've just bounced around the city, not done anything specific. But one of the most kind of consistent parts of my life, not just here, but back in Nottingham, was was always yoga. Yoga was something we were, we were raised with as kids, um, although my other siblings haven't really taken to it. Uh, it's just it's just myself. Um, so, I mean, I, I studied philosophy at university, did a master's, had dreams of academia, which were, were completely crushed due to lack of funding. Um, and then I've just bounced around in different things. I've worked in charities, um, currently a civil servant, but not for much longer. Because uh, if anyone is if interested in working for the civil service, please do not. Because it's, <laughs> it is not a rewarding <laughs> career. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's not quite as, as human as it once was. As with many kind of big organisations and corporations. Um, uh, as I said, married with three beautiful kids. Um, one of whom is a, is a wonderful teenager. I have to say very, very clearly a wonderful teenager. Because she has none of the, the kind of classical traumatic Character traits that you associate with a girl of her age. Thankfully, thus far, she's been a good one. Um, I've got two sons, um, eleven and eight. One of whom is just a miniature version of myself, which is always nice to see, um, and and also extremely scary at the same time because it's another version of you know, well, what do you do with that? Um, and uh, as you said, Hannah, um, I'm teaching yoga, um, which happened accidentally about a year or so ago. Um, ended up being trained as a teacher. Um, after having practiced for a good, what are we saying, thirty years, um and it's it's it's, it's come along beautifully. I've I've really kind of met a lot with people, and it's interesting to see yoga from the other side, as it were. You know, as a, as a teacher as opposed to a student. Um. Yes. Oh, and also, um, uh, one of the stories, one of the, the kind of aspects of myself, I like to tell stories. So um, apologies in advance. I'm probably going off on several tangents during this podcast <laughs> telling stories. Um, well, that is books, why
0: I've asked you to come oh, yeah. on. Is because we, like, want yes, <laughs> we want the stories. Yes. So don't apologise.
1: It's very strange because I remember when you asked me, um, people have asked me in the past to do things like this and I've always, I've always been disinclined to doing anything. Sharing my stories on, on a public setting just seems a bit of a, a strange endeavour. Personally, I'm not saying it's wrong as a, as a as an activity but um don't know when you ask me yeah, something it's like the penny drop of, but maybe it's time now maybe i should actually i've gone past 40 i should actually share some of these stories and and you know hopefully people can can at the very least feel a bit better about their day when they hear them you know because i've had some weird experiences i've traveled the world um which has been a, a huge part of my life been to really some some really obscure parts of the you know middle of the mountain ranges in north africa um freezing my things off shall we say um (laughs) i'm the cold i i i you know i I don't like to swear Um, (laughs) i used to swear like a fisherman it was amazing you know really creative swearing In fact, i've got a story about swearing um can, can i share it very quickly of
0: course go on
1: so you know obviously traveling the world you know you come across a lot of different languages um and i grew up speaking a few languages fortunately it was part and parcel of of the way we were raised. So we had several languages in our house when we were in a house when we were growing up. So we had, um, you know, some Arabic, some Bengali, which were the two main kind of languages we spoke, some Urdu because of the guys next door, Punjabi, which was another one, Other guys just down the street. My sister was living in the Punjabi house, so she would speak better Punjabi than she would her own mother tongue. Um, and it was disgusting. You know, we always <laughs> take a look at them. You know, we, we accidentally adopted a Punjabi child into our family. Um, <laughs> And then eventually I learned English um, when I went to school. Uh, but, you know, you, you travel all. And, and then one of the things you, you really notice about languages is, is the concept of swearing. Some languages just don't have that as a, as a, as a reality. Now, Arabic it's very, very difficult to find anything that you would term a swear word in Arabic. There's ways of insulting really? people. Yeah, it's very bizarre. So if I was, if I was to be really angry, um, I, the, one of the worst insults you could say to a person in Arabic Actually, two is kal, which is dog, or khinzir, which is pig. If you call somebody that, then you know, that's that's like you know, you, you've you've completely dishonored that person. That's the worst thing possible to say in the Arabic language. Um, but other languages, you know, like English is you know amazing. You can swear so creative. Oh, yeah. However, it is not the worst language for swearing. The worst mm-hmm. language on earth that I've come across for swearing is Punjabi. The
0: really? way they
1: speak yeah, seriously, dude, it's amazing way they string together these words in a very i don't want to use the word creative but it is i suppose there is an aspect of creativity there. yeah you know, I, and i can't translate it you know it's <laughs> incestuous kind of animalistic swear we strung together in this long chain of insults um so the worst time the worst time i ever got insulted by by some punjabi women um was when i was in all places i went to the city of mecca in arabia so mecca is like a, a site of pilgrimage for, for, for mm. muslims and obviously that's my background. So I've I've been there a couple of times and there's, there's several things you can do as part of the, the, the rites. Um, but one of the things, so I don't know if you know much about Mecca, there's, there's a black building in the middle of the, si- of the city. Mm. And this mm. black building is called the Kaaba. And it's the place where people walk around you know, seven times when, when Muslims pray. They, they point their, themselves towards that direction wherever they are on the earth. Um, so when you get there, there's different things. And in one corner, of the the, the Karawai, this black building, is this thing called the Black Stone. And the Black Stone, they said, was originally white because uh, the the purpose of the Black Stone is purification. And if you can connect to the Black Stone, either by touching the stone with your hand or even kissing the stone, they say that stone will remove the impurities from your heart and allow you to begin anew. It's like a shortcut. And so um, I I heard legends of this from my, my parents or grandparents when I was a kid. And I got there. And you get there. And dude, it's phenomenal. You ever watched wrestling when you were a kid?
0: A little bit, yeah. More my brothers thing.
1: Do you remember uh, something called Royal Rumble? Oh, I don't know. The Royal Rumble is is this annual event in wrestling. I'm going somewhere with this, just this. yeah. Sorry, uh, <laughs> you always are no 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 <laughs>
0: <laughs> I love it, I love no. it. This is why we want you to tell the stories. <laughs>
1: right. So with the Royal Rumble, it's an annual event in wrestling. I believe it's still taking place uh, where 30 big birdie men enter the ring and they just go at it. And the last man standing wins. So that's it. It's, it's, it's amazing. When you're, I mean, you're a little boy, you know, you, you just, mm. you're just mesmerised by this, this, this kind of sight of big birdie men beating the crap out of each other in order to claim this title. Um, and then you go to school and you replicate the activity. Uh, anyway, so um, when you get to the black stone, it's essentially just a war rumble. Um, people are really viciously trying to get to the stone, which negates the whole purpose. And they don't realize that by acting in that manner, they're negating any possible benefit they can get from, from connecting to that, that, that particular stone. Um, but that's beside the point. That's what they do anyway. And the guards around the, the place, guards, caretakers, muqaddim, they call them, um, they, they, it's just too much for them to handle. And there's mm. certain groups of people from certain parts of the world which are known to be the most violent. Um, without stereotyping, they just they just are culturally. They're a bit more kind of aggressive in their language, in their culture, in their, in their behavior. So you've got people like the Afghans, the, the Turks, and the certain groups of Pakistanis. They're the worst. They're the ones who um, initiate the rumble, and you know, last man standing, you know, has to has to kind of. Get to <laughs> it's disgusting so I'm, I'm there with one of my best mates very very close person to me um whenever I've traveled usually it's with him he's a very very beautiful individual he, he travels the world doing a lot of charity work. So I've done a lot of my charity work with him as well and so we get there and he he has been there many times so he says do you want to get to the backstone and I'd love to but look at it you know there's no way we can do that and he goes no no there's a way there's a way just follow me and he says and do as I do and when we get there, just, just copy everything I'm doing. It's going to be really intense. You're going to be crushed by all the people there. It's, it's that, uh, what's the word in English? Um, crowded, crowded. Mm. Um, and follow me. So all the crowds that walk around the spectrum, they go around in an anti-clockwise direction to mimic kind of celestial movements and subatomic movements. So generally speaking, orbital kind of movements are in an anti-clockwise direction. So the earth going around the sun. The sun going around the center of the galaxy, and even the galaxy centering around the center of the universe. They say everything, more or less, with rare exceptions, is going anti-clockwise, um, and it's supposed to mimic that particular act and connect you to that high reality and beyond through imitation, through reflection, through meditation. Um, so he goes, "What we're going to do? We're going to walk the opposite way through the crowds in a clockwise direction, and diagonally approach the black stone." And he goes, "It's going to take a while." People won't mind. Just don't push people away. Go walk Mm. gently. Keep your eyes down. Keep your focus. Keep your heart present. Breathe. So on and so forth. And so we we, we do it. We go. And it takes about, I would say, a good 40 minutes or so to make our way very, very slowly towards the, 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 the Kaaba, the black building. And we get there. And the door of the Kaaba is above the ground. So it's about head height. And to the left of the door is the black stone. That's who it is. And so our objective was to reach the door just underneath. And goes, mm-hmm. when we get there, what we're going to do, we're going to place our hand on the wall. And when you place your hand on the wall, you've pretty much made it. You're going to move ever so slowly, literally centimeter by centimeter left until you reach the black stone. Everyone else is pushing in the other way. You're very gently working against the crowd. <laughs> and goes, it's going to take a lot longer, but we're going to be able to do it peacefully and in a state of tranquility, in spite of the chaos around the cacophony of action and, and reactions and, and absolute mayhem that's taken around you. You say, don't worry about it, just keep your hand on the building, focus and just move every time a little space opens up. So we get there, we get to the door. And then um, as we're there, it's, it's literally, dude, it's heaving. My face is crushed against the face of this random Punjabi woman, it's that busy. And she's screaming away. Everyone else is screaming away. Um, and then uh, behind this this Punjabi woman I know she's Punjabi because she's screaming in that language right? and then uh, she's surrounded by her buddies, there's a, there's a whole gaggle of Punjabi women and they're all middle aged old or aggressive and as soon as I'm there they start shouting insults at me. what are you doing here, you don't belong here and then they go off into the squares and the thing about Mecca is you're not supposed to be violent in any way shape or form you're not even supposed to step on an ant you, can't, you have to watch your thoughts. You have to keep yourself in a state of very deep meditation when you're there and, and, and kind of focus on objectivity. So when sh- as soon as she starts shouts, uh, shouting these insults at me and Adam, Adam's a lot bigger than me, by the way. he's got six foot two, huge. And I'm, I barely reach five foot seven on a good day. I have to tiptoe a lot of the time. Um, you know, as soon as they start shouting these really creative but harsh insults, I kind of incline my head towards the right and my eyes kind of widen. I'm like, whoa, what did you say? And the second, the second that they realize, this man understands what we're saying, that's it. They let rip. They completely start insulting me, my lineage, my mother, my father, my brother, my sister, my, my, my pets, my, my car, doesn't matter, my hair. You know, and this is all the while people are fighting to get to Blackstone. And so my, my heart, you know me, I've got a very soft heart. I can't take that kind of stuff. So my eyes are welling up because I'm I mean, they've been really hurtful. Um, and uh, Adam realizes that I'm getting quite upset and goes, Look, we're gonna we're very close. I'm gonna use my size, my sheer size, and he's shouting this at me to open up a gap for you. I want you to dive under my arm and get to Blackstone. I'm like, okay, I'm ready. And then it takes, it takes a couple of minutes because it's that busy in spite of his size. Keeping in mind, we're being pushed, shoved, punched, um, shouted at, insulted at by these punjab women as well. All this stuff's going on. We were drenched in sweat. I'd lost my glasses. Um, and my hand was crushed between the bodies of several people. Um, it turned, I've got a scar on my hand from it as well. Um, but anyway, so all this is happening. And then Adam manages to use his sheer strength, will, and size to open up a space, which is just big enough for me to get to the backstone. And he looks at me very intensely. He can't speak at this moment. It's too intense. And that look is now. Now is your moment. And then something happened. Something very strange happened. So my father, when he would tell me stories about this place, he would say the black stone is something that we have to remember has a type of consciousness, an awareness, a connection to every single spirit it connects to. Um, It will connect to. It knows already who's going to come to it and it knows when to open itself up for that person. he goes, when I've gone, this is my father saying, whenever I've gone, I've gone through the intensity of the crowds and I've known the moment that the black stone has opened itself up to allow me to approach it and when I've approached the black stone everything around me becomes still nothing matters it's as if I enter into this different dimension and everything is muffled. and it's just me and the stone and then I connect to the stone what happens happens and then I, I, I step back when I know it's time so Adam's there and I'm remembering this. why because it doesn't feel like that's my time and I could have moved under it but it felt like a violation I thought no that's that's not for me that's that's for Adam. And so I look intensely at Adam because I can't speak either. It's too, it's too much going on. And he understood my look. So he turned his back to me and went to the black stone. And all the chaos is still going on. People are still fighting and struggling to get there. But for some reason, whenever a person connects to the stone, that person is always left alone. And that's not an intentional thing. People just seem to not realise there's somebody there. It's very, very strange. And so Adam connects to the stone. And then when when you've done your you know your connection to the stone, what you have to do, you have to release yourself, and then the crowd physically push you out. You can't do anything. You just it's like it's like crowd surfing, but in a in a slightly violent and violating manner. You know, hands are going everywhere. Man. Hands are going everywhere. <laughs> so he's gone, and I'm left little kind of you know um, little brown fella in the midst of all these violent people. You know, I, my heart's already broken from all the insults because it was it was harsh one. Um, and I don't know what I'm going to do. So I'm thinking I'm, I'm here, I'm just going to wait for a moment. And I, I'm not quite sure how long passed, but there was a lot of violence taking place next to backstone, Blackstone. And whilst these two men, you know, just to the left of them, are struggling with each other, they're literally in, in proper Jiu-Jitsu mode, they're fighting each other to get to the stone. Something happens and my heart just goes still. And I look to the stone, and it's open. Nobody's around it. And I think, okay, now, And so I go in very, very kind of peacefully, connect to the stone. What happens, happens. And the muffling of the sound and the atmosphere and the environment around me takes place. And it's just me and the stone. And I couldn't tell you how long I was there because it didn't seem like time was being measured according to standard kind of measures. But I was there for as long as I needed to be. I knew when to let go. And I let go. And then and then violently got pushed out. Because by the time I got pushed out, he was there standing at the edge of the, the, the crowd, covered, I mean, absolutely drenched in sweat. Like, his clothes were soaked through. And mine <laughs> was soaked through. My glasses were gone. There was a big gash on my hand from, from I don't even know what. Um, and then um, to put a kind of good spin on Punjabis, because I, I like Punjabi. One of the best mates in Nottingham is a Punjabi person. So just to end the story, sorry I'm going on a bit. Uh,
0: you're not going on you don't need to
1: apologize <laughs> cool. Excellent. so just put a positive spin on Punjabi people because they have their good beautiful qualities and I really do mean good beautiful qualities and this will summarize that point. so you know we've just been through a very 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 intense experience you know I, I was tears were just streaming down both of our eyes, not through being upset just the intensity of it it was it was very very heavy but very very you know kind of um What's the word in English? Like almost like revitalizing, but physically we were exhausted, absolutely exhausted. And so um, we start to walk because you do your seven circuits around the the building, the, the car, the black building, anyway. And we hadn't done that, so we decided let's just walk. And we we're taking very, very slow, measured, drained, exhausted steps. And as we were walking, I, I look looked to, to the corner of my eye, something catches my eye, and it's, it's an old Punjabi bun. I recognised his features, you know, and his dress was Punjabi, salwar kameez is called, and the sort of way he was, he's wearing his uh, ridar, his, his scarf wrapped around his head, it was in the Punjabi style. So I knew, art. Uh, and I was like, oh, no, not another one. And that was really bad of me, but you know, was, initially that was my instinct. I was like, God damn! Um, and he's looking at me with this red. He's very old. He's got a big white beard. Imagine like a brown Santa Claus dressed in Pakistani clothes, Punjabi clothes. That's that's kind of the image I want in your head right now. Smiling very, very kind, of fatherly towards him, and um, he's looking at us. And then he he walks over to us, and he's with his wife. And his wife kind of smiles and pushes him on. And he walks over to us, takes off his rida, his, his scarf on his shoulder, and he goes up to Adam first because Adam must have been in a worse state because he he was basically pushing people very gently. You made that path available because I'm too small to be able to make that path, and he's you know physically a lot larger. So he goes up to Adam and starts to clean his face with his, with his Uh, scarf, sorry. It was just a really emotional moment. Um, And then, um, it was beautiful. And then uh, he walks up to me and does the same thing to to myself as well. Uh, It was a very beautiful moment. And then uh, he walked behind me and then gave me a very kind of gentle massage on my shoulders, and patting me on the back. And then he just disappeared. Uh, I never forgot who he was. He was a beautiful individual. But that, that experience was very, very potent, you know, reaching that place, going through all that intensity. And then the, at the end of it, this beautiful human being just appeared and, and you know, looked after us you know, for a few yeah. seconds, for a few moments. Um, and I've got no idea why I'm telling the story. I've completely lost the, 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 origin, <laughs> the original motivation for it. We were talking about
0: swearing and then, but I feel oh, like yeah, you were meant good. to... I feel like you want to tell that story for a reason because it's gone from you know the the violent words and the, the violence of all these people yeah. and then that little moment that just like brings so much love back into the, the moment rather really than did. focusing on the <laughs> the aggress- aggressiveness is that a word yeah. Aggression.
1: Yeah.
0: aggression aggression yeah oh I love that uh, so that's my introduction
1: there we go. That, that was- <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, let's go back a little bit, yes sorry. um no, 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 i I absolutely love that because that warmed my heart. I'm glad that you shared that, so I actually didn't know that you um your parents like brought yoga into your your family as a kid i I just assumed it was something that you you came to later on in life. Oh, really? It was from I know one side of the family. family, so I know because obviously you've got a, a strong Muslim background. And I know yeah. from other people who've got like strong religious families that they don't, yoga's almost seen, seen as a
1: religion. It is, it is. It's a misconception, um, yeah. which has come about over the past century or so. Since um, colonialism kind of ended, there's been a, mm. a disconnection from our own Indian heritage as, uh, on my mum's side, as Muslims. Because uh, what from my father's side, they, they stem back to the Arabs. So it's a very different type of Islamic tradition and culture. In India is very very different and it was very much in tune with the yogis and the the, the Buddhists so when when I used to visit my grandfather's village you know there, there were Buddhist temples there uh, not many but there were there were there were Hindu temples there Hindu idols and there was a temple to was it Shiva or Kali it would have been Kali it would have been Shiva um one of Shiva's temples um oh and it's Lakshmi Lakshmi that was the other one mm. so she's like the um the mother deity yeah that, that, that. kind of I suppose you're familiar with Lakshmi aren't you yeah
0: yeah
1: yeah Damn right do you want to
0: give it for anyone who's listening who isn't familiar Lakshmi
1: Um, Lakshmi is in the Hindu tradition so amongst the kind of um the group of deities that exist each deity represents a different quality a different virtue so Shiva is is the god of destruction
0: I think that's
1: Kali Kali's god of destruction Kali is there's there's brahma vishnu and shiva and mm. one is creation one is maintenance one is destruction and i forget which one shiva is he's one of them like <laughs> he's one of them he's one of those <laughs> they're, they're, they're a little group they're a yeah. kind of hindu trinity if you like uh mm. lakshmi is is according to some traditions his wife so she she is very much that nurturing mother nature type of figure so a lot of people who go through pregnancies or who wish to have children they attach themselves to the, the figure of Lakshmi and they invoke her in order to, to seek um, benefit and blessings and and openings in terms of pregnancy and having children. And if a child is ill, for example, they will, they will invoke her again, go to her temple and and seek uh, to connect to her ability to, to help. them. Um, so Lakshmi is, is one of the more kind of more akin to like Mother Earth, as we would yeah. term her in the West. Very, very similar um stands for many of the, the the same types of things. So when you see the, the actual statues of Lakshmi, she's a very gentle um her features are or her expression is very kind of maternal. She's smiling um as opposed to Kali. Uh, many people kind of <laughs> have a negative kind of view of Kali. She's she's not a bad woman.
0: No, you know, I love Kali Kali probably who I connect
1: with the most to be
0: honest. Really? yeah essence, I, 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 don't know, I don't know why but i always seem to come back to Kali and
1: i have my theories on that um again Ooh. relating to your own kind of constitutions as a as a as a, as a fiery person mm. and for those who are listening i i uh no that'll take too long um basically <laughs> per, ancient, person- like, um, ancient personality type models are associated with the elements: so earth a fire and water and each mm. one represents a different type. And then you can see all of those manifestations in everything, especially people. So everyone's a combination of all four, but people have dominant traits. And each trait has a level of maturity and development. So it will be different for everyone. Um, and if you ever want to know more, then just come and have a chat with me after one of my classes. <laughs> um, and and just bear with me because I'll probably go off for, for quite a while. Um, <laughs> yeah so so kylie has a, an association with fire um ah, uh, you really call her a, a very fiery personality and um, when i say fiery personality i don't mean somebody who's destructive and out of control fire when you think about it in its primordial sense i mean i lived in the desert you know in the middle of the night we would light a fire and the fire would represent reassurance safety security protection and that's what a fire person, when they're mature, represents. Those types of qualities, like a fire in the middle of the night, in the middle of the, the kind of desert. Um, but when it's out of control, it can be destructive. You have to, you have to respect it um, and treat it accordingly, give it the fuel that it needs, but you have to to contain it. Um, so anyway, look kind of yourself. It makes sense. <laughs> um, it was actually one of my aunties who got me to yoga. I remember she she said to me. I, I tell this story to, you, to some people. She, I was, what, nine years old? And she, she, she takes me through these stretches, right? And she goes, uh, do these stretches. It'll make you tall. And I'm like, yeah, I'll be tall. And, so, <laughs> and uh, I've I mentioned it really, I? am barely five foot seven on a good day. And uh, you know, I see her from time to time. like, well, what happened, man? You, know, you told me I'd be tall.
0: A liar. No <laughs> well, she, she
1: defends her <laughs> position. She goes, how tall was your father? Because, you know, my father passed away about five years ago. Um, and I remember the day I surpassed my father in height. It was a big day. For me. Uh, my own son's getting there now. I told him I'm going to remove his kneecaps if he grows anymore. <laughs> um, but, but my auntie says, you know, you were taller than your father, weren't you? Like, yeah. She goes, well, I was right then. It made you taller. That's true. <laughs> Relatively speaking. <I'm> <laughs> uh, the five foot seven is not what I had in mind when I started yoga. Um, some basic kind of hatha stretches. There was a lot of general um and um so the forward folds you know mm. and um then reversing it with the the, knasana, the the what do you call it eastern post uh yeah. like a reverse
0: table
1: yes the reverse, reverse table that, yes yeah. reverse plank um and then um, the headstand the headstand as well mm. that's that's a big thing um <clears> but going back to the original point you know Indian Muslims were, were very much connected to the, the Hindu mm. uh, mystics, the Hindu yogis. And yoga, I mean, there was a whole kind of... Because my, my own family, Muslim background, though it may be, they, they incline towards this aspect of Sufism. So Sufis are always more... And it, it's almost like a dirty term nowadays, but I'm going to use any spiritual. They emphasize the spiritual aspects of the religion. So they have a lot more in common with traditions like Kabbalah in Judaism, um you know being a monk or a a nun in christianity like the jesuits that kind of mentality you, you dedicate yourself in a spiritual sense the only kind of distinction between sufis and and the traditions i've mentioned is sufis will not disassociate themselves with the world they will engage with the world but they won't attach to it and say that's the real test and so in india there were many many sufi orders um, the Chishtiya, the Naqshbandi, they're all random words. The Chishti and the Naqshbandi, they were the two of the biggest orders. Um, and this still exists today. There's a lot of Chishtis in India, especially in the North. Naqshbandi all over. Uh, Naqshbandi is a mental man, seriously. They, they do this meditation, which is uh, usually in the middle of the night, in the dark, they'll stand or sit in a circle. And they will recite different, I suppose you could call them mantras, invocations, yeah. like divine names and realities, but in repetition. And one, it's very hypnotic. Two, it's, it's extremely potent. So if you've not seen that stuff before, it can be very, what's the word? Uh, we say Jalali. So Jalali is, is, is what? Like majestic, oh. very, very kind of intense experience. And then they'll, they'll end i will send you a recording one day. I'm not going to... Oh, yes, please. It, so it's, it's very, very intense. Um, but there was a group of Sufis, uh, a Sufi order called the Shatari. And the Shatari were, were a kind of offshoot of the Chishtiya. So they had subgroups, the, the, the first group of the Sufis in India that I mentioned. And the Shatari, what, what makes them kind of stand out is they used thousands of different asanas in their practices, in their in the meditations, their worships, their meditations. And they had their own set of sequences. And the manuscripts still exist. They're very, very slowly being translated by certain academics, um, primarily in the States. Um, so one of my teachers actually introduced me to the Shataris. And it was amazing, dude, because for the first time you can reconcile with tangible evidence the fact that being um, a Muslim yogi is, is not just fine, it's old news. It's been done mm. for over a thousand years and there was never any issue. There was so much interaction and mutual beneficiary for, between the two sides that it was, it, was, it was a known practice and an encouraged practice as well. So then I started learning about Elemental breathing from the Shatari Sufis, these yogis. They call them the, the Sufia in Arabic and the Yogiya. And when I came across that word, I was like, that's Yogi in Arabic. I never <laughs> knew that was an actual thing. And it rhymes with Sufis as well. So it's like, yes. So the Yogiya and the Sufiya, they would come together and they would exchange knowledge in order to benefit each other. Because a lot of their practices were already very, very similar. And so now the, the, the Sufis, oh my God. Fat spiders just walk past me. Um, Sorry, my cat's (laughs) going to get it. It's okay. It's huge. My wife sees that, she's going to freak out. Oh, the big ones at the minute, isn't that? (laughs) Yeah, this one's a beast. Hang on, let me call my cat. Uh, (laughs) So yes, going back to the Shafari Sufis, one of the things that I picked up from them um, is elemental breathing. And I've started to incorporate this in a lot of my classes. So the earth breath is a real phenomenon, as is the water breath, as is the fire and the air breath. And it's slightly different from, say, things in like Shivananda. Um, They do similar things, but it's a different style of breath, which uh, involves a meditation and a visualization as well, and the specific benefits and reasons to do that. And so one of the things I've started to do, depending on the person I'm interacting with in the class or the vibe of the class, I will incorporate whatever style of breathing needs to be incorporated in that moment and that time for that person or that group. And it works a treat randomly in a beach last night um, with a bunch of hippies. Um, never met them before. And we were just, uh, they were all kind of all over the place. So much mind chatter going on. So we all sat down. We engaged in something called the earth breath. And uh, I think you'll you appreciate this. The earth breath is very simple to do. So you sit on the earth in a comfortable position. You close your eyes and then you just begin to breathe, as you ordinarily would uh, in, the, in the beginning of the class. And you, you observe your breath where is your breath going, your chest diaphragm, your belly and then you will start deep in the breath very slowly and then very slowly as you inhale you raise your left hand gently place it on your belly and then inhale again as you exhale you place your right hand on your left and then you would feel the breath enter that particular part of your physical reality where your hands are placed so as you breathe in the belly rises And as you breathe out, the belly falls, and you can very gently even encourage the breath to come out by pushing upon the belly. And then you would do that for a few moments and then deepen the breath, close the eyes, and then you would visualize the earth space beneath you. However, that visualization takes place for you. And everyone sees something different. You know, some people see themselves in the earth, some people see themselves on a grassy verge, other people on a mountain, other people on a desert, some people by the coast. It's bizarre. And obviously, that tells you a lot about the person you're dealing with and where they are in their lives and what, what they might be going through. And then you continue that for a few moments, deepening in the breath more and more, pausing, holding, exhaling out through the nose. So it's always in through the nose, out through the nose. That's the earth breath. And then the other elements have different ways. And then you return your breath to normal and you pause and breathe for as long as you need to return to that space. And then when you're ready, very gently opening your eyes, releasing your hands from the bed, placing them on palms. You look up and then you end, always, very, very importantly, you end with a smile. And then that's it.
0: Oh, I love that. I can't wait to try that you know, after, we, yeah. uh, after that call.
1: <laughs> yes. No, we'll, we'll go through one day. Um, oh, yeah. Again, if anyone comes to my class, so usually I, I begin my classes like that. Now, uh, with a quick earth meditation, earth breath meditation.
0: Heaven. <laughs> oh, Oh, do you know what? Even just hearing you speak that, I feel so much more grounded already.
1: Awesome. Excellent. Hopefully other people are feeling similar things. It's amazing, (sighs) isn't it? Just a simple few moments breathing and connecting to the earth around us just does so much to kind of ground and realign the perspective in, in a much more stable manner. And then you can, you know, when you stand up, your standing up is upon such a stronger foundation than you had before. Hmm. and all the crap's still there that's all right we're in a, we're in a place where there's going to be a lot crap. that's just the nature of the world but we can deal with the crap a bit more and it's it's uh it's as simple as just a bit of breath it won't solve your problems but it'll help you find a way to solve your problems and that's the key kind of distinction to to take into account um, which i always try and remind people i'm mm-hmm. not here to solve your problems You them. can solve them. i can help you find a way to find a way
0: yeah Sounds very much like an inner voice session.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, it, it. it, it, it you does, not you it? You've basically does. just explained what an inner session is. So
1: for everyone listening, go to Hannah for her inner voice session. That's basically it. Well, obviously, there's a lot more. There's a lot more. There's, there's a lot of,
0: of, Yeah, there's more, but in a, in a very simple manner, that's how I kind of try and explain it to people. So, yeah, if you want to solve your, your own problems, come to me or Una. <laughs> 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 She you telling us about the breath and your, your family history. So, yeah, that's so interesting that I actually never, I almost feel a little bit ignorant that doing a yoga teacher training, I never actually knew that there was, like, such a strong connection with the Muslim faith and the, well,
1: the that's, yoga. That's not your fault at all. Um, You have to remember that the, the kind of advent of yoga in the West was because of Orientalists. Hmm. And, you know, there was one particular chap... Um, I forget his name, not Richard Burton, somebody else. The, the, the chap who initially found the lost manuscript of Patanjali, the sutras of Patanjali.
0: Oh, yeah. That's... We'll Google
1: it. We'll Google it. We'll, we'll, we'll add us, it into, uh, the, uh, yeah, into the,
0: well, uh, the, the show notes.
1: Yes, yes. In fact, uh, there's a particularly good translation, but the important point of the translation that he found or mm. that he did it was based on an existing translation, which was done by a Muslim, a Muslim scholar, uh, wow. Sheikh uh, Abu Rayhan al-Biruni, his name was from around 750 years ago. And so he, he rediscovered the Sutras of Patanjali and he was so impressed with what he read and so kind of connected because he recognized a lot of what Patanjali was talking about. Was things within the Sufi tradition anyway, you know, with differences, of course, but mm. he recognized the value of the similarities. So he translated it and he called it Pitabla Patanjali uh, al Hindi, the, the book of uh, Patanjali the Indian. That's what it literally <laughs> translates it. And so all existing translations are because of Sheikh Abu al, al-, al- Biruni. And so this Orientalist, wow. uh, whatever his name is, he he took that. Where he completely dismissed or ignored, or was ignorant. Well, I don't know what, you know, colonialists, they didn't really like brown people, did they? Really? Let's be honest.
0: No. Um,
1: no. Like, yeah, let's be
0: completely honest, he didn't. They
1: did. They did yeah. Uh, yeah. What did Kipling call it? The White Man's Burden. I don't know. And that was Kipling, yeah, Jungle Book. But anyway, mm. that's a different discussion. So um, <laughs> when, when he, he popularized the uh, the sutras of Patanjali, he completely neglected to mention any connective aspect to the muslims at all completely and so yoga has always been portrayed as a hindu um tradition um that's true in the sense that it has its foundation and its origin in the hindu tradition but it's certainly not been kept within the tradition at all in any way shape or form Mm. you've got you know muslim as we mentioned muslim yogis you've got buddhist yogis you've got jainists i don't know if anyone's heard of jainism as a faith they exist there's, there's yogis amongst their, their traditions. There's Taoists. Um, they've adopted aspects mm. of yogi uh, yoga, even. Um, and you've got the, the Bahá'í uh, Bahai people. Some of them have indulged in the yoga tradition as well. Right? It's, it's and all, It's all good. I mean, what yeah. is yoga except using physical movement to understand your uh, spiritual reality? Yeah. And that's all it is. And you can translate that into your own traditions without neglecting the foundations which were laid by those Hindu yogi masters. You know, it's very simple, and it has mm-hmm. been done for thousands of years. And then, you know, lo and behold, Mister Mister Colonialist comes along and then says, "No, nope, it's Hindus." Uh, yeah. Which you know that that's been adopted not just here, but it's also been unfortunately popularized within the, the, the current Indian political dialogue as well. Um, so you see a lot of that there. There's there's uh, without discussing politics too much because I don't think that's that's really beneficial for our discussion. Mm. But there is a push to to kind of ignore the the contribution, the legacy of Muslim yogis in the yoga tradition yeah. um, across the board, which which never which was never the case hundred years ago, one hundred and fifty years ago, and and before.
0: Mm. Yeah, because that's the thing with yoga, isn't it? It's like you know, before I did my teacher training, I did just think it was this physical practice, mm. but then. There is these thousands of years, like the Vedas and you know Patanjali sutras of
1: mm.
0: almost like the they are almost like rules to live, but then it's not in a it's not a religion.
1: It's not a dogmatic. It's not a dogmatic,
0: yeah. It's not like you have to follow these rules or you're gonna go to a mm. really dark end up in a dark place. <laughs> <laughs> we're not, we're not so that. I don't know exactly. I didn't want to use hell, but you know we're not going to go to hell if we don't follow it. You know, I'm probably going there anyway. I <laughs> it. be all right. I got you no, I don't believe in it. Um, maybe we'll you. Are <laughs> oh yeah, that's true. Um, but it is interesting to see. how like because it is these set of methods to live, almost like mm-hmm. ideas of how to live better that it can be construed in it as a religion and can be taken in in that concept and have people almost try and own it like own it as this yeah. is ours and that you can't do this unless you follow this this path
1: yeah which is ironic isn't it because yeah. a lot of what it, it aims to do is is a negation of the ego um it's not removing the ego completely because that's not necessarily mm. what is, is, is possible for a human being, but it's controlling yeah. the ego through yeah. these practices. So within our own Sufi tradition, I know the yogis have this as well. The sutras are a good example, in fact. Mm. You know, what are the sutras except what we would call in the Sufi tradition principles? Yeah, And a principle is, is how do you define principle? Um, so the thing that other things depend upon. So a principle of language is that you, you know words and letters and sounds and so on. And so sutras are spiritual principles which are then taken and translated into individuals' lives or communities' lives to make it more meaningful and relevant for them in their time and in their place. And that, that's what principles are supposed to be. They're not supposed to be dogmatic. Um, yes and no rules black and white rules abstract rules they they are supposed to be translated so long as you don't um misunderstand the principle so we're using the example of language again you know you know when you say the word apple that's based on you know five letters understanding that the principles of letters there are you use specific letters to indicate a specific reality now if you shift that that indication to to go to a reality that apple isn't representing then you've kind of misunderstood the principle there. And so it's mm. the same thing. You know, apple can mean many, many different things for different people, but it's still referring to a type of fruit, whether it's a Granny Smith, whether it's a. <laughs> that's the only one I know. What else? Golden Delicious. Else? Golden
0: and Delicious. Um, I forgot. <laughs> is it a pink one? Pink Lady. Pink
1: Lady, yes. Pink
0: Lady, I should know that because we get them.
1: Yeah, yeah I know what Pink Lady was until very recently. It was, it was a revelation. Oh, really? Yeah, I know. Mm. I am brown, you know. I don't...
0: <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's like, the, it's the essence of the word, isn't it?
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. I was
0: talking about this yeah. the other day, in a I did an inner a voice master, and we were saying it's like the, you, know, you can use inner voice, you can use intuition, you can use soul, but it's the, it's the essence of the word that you're looking for.
1: Yeah, yeah. And that's the I mean, same with the sutras. I, it's exactly the same with the sutras. Mm. I, I remember when I was studying um, grammar, Arabic grammar, uh it was amazing the guy who taught us Arabic grammar you know you, you hear the word grammar and you think it's a very dull dry subject and it is there's no <laughs> escaping unless the person who teaches you is 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 some kind of mad spiritual master which is exactly what we had so this is there's a there's a teacher who, who taught us Arabic grammar and he just turned it into a discourse about spirituality so the first lesson he goes a word has a form which is singular but its meanings are multiple like, whoa, okay. And he goes, just like human beings, we have a singular form, but our reality is multiple. It never ends. I'm like, okay, what kind of grammar class is this? Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, then no, you got his hook there. So every time you go through different things, like he, he spoke about nouns, what is a noun? A noun is something that is referred to outside of time and space and independent reality. And like that's not what we were taught in school. <laughs> <laughs> I
0: wish it had been taught that in school.
1: <laughs> it would have been phenomenal. Yeah. It's uh principles are very, very important. You can you can you can take any principle and, and abuse it and it's it's done quite a lot. I've had for whatever reason the past month, I keep coming across people who have been um oh, are
0: you still there? Uh, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Oh sorry, I lost you for a bit then. Yeah, um, I can't do anything that's dark or violent anymore. I, used, I always used to like struggle with it, but now I just can't do
1: it at all. Yeah, I, re- I remember you saying it's just, yeah. it's just not, it's, it was, it's weird, isn't it? Like, you no, know, I think it's very wise because I mean, you know, I'm doing that masters in psychology. Yeah, and so part of that is looking at concept. I've just done a paper on aggression, and it was looking at you know the 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 the, the re- one the, the well the potential reasons aggression has become so wide scale. Um, And it's almost become like an accepted phenomenon. And Mm. one of the things they look at of many, many different things is just the fact that in in the first 12 years of a child's life, they're exposed to more violence than a person would be exposed to historically in the entire kind of duration of their lives. And that's not normal. And when I say exposed to violence, I mean the worst types of violence, talking, you know, people being killed. So they've seen people on screen or on video games being killed in, in in horrible manners. And mm. that's not that's not normal. I've dealt with death firsthand. You know, I've done the charity work.
0: Yeah.
1: And you know we, we've been in, in some really dire places where we've had to deal with refugees coming in and sometimes carrying in dead bodies, you know, because they've got no you know, dead children and so on. Um, they don't want to leave their, their, their dead behind. And when you're faced physically with that reality, that's that's it is traumatizing. Mm. You know, it, it leaves a very um, heavy Kind of impact upon your heart, and so for for people to trivialise violence in such a way that they have in in the modern day kind of culture, through the medium of films and video games, that's that's not normal. So for yourself to say that you know you, you don't like watching those things, you're not supposed to like watching those things. That's the <laughs> point.
0: Yeah, I know. I'm like, isn't it weird that I don't like watching people be murdered on the telly? <laughs>
1: like no, it's weird that people enjoy it. You know?
0: Yeah, that's and a I'm really not- good point.
1: It is, it is. And it's, it's not pleasant, you know, when you see that the, the actual violence take place. I mean, it's...
0: Oh, especially for you, like witnessing that type of thing firsthand, mm. you, you, you're not going to find it entertaining. No. Watching no. it on the... Because it's not.
1: No. It's like, that it's shouldn't not. really
0: be entertaining, should they?
1: And it's certainly not entertaining for those people who are going through it. No. Yeah, I mean, one of the things we had to do was interview a lot of the 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 refugees. So we were there's different ways of fundraising. Uh, so it depends the project. So with this project, I'm I'm thinking of, which was a good few years back. Um, we we interviewed specific people. It was women, um, who had, who uh, they'd gone through what they'd gone through. I don't want to go into the detail. And it mm. was horrible, absolutely horrible, the worst types of human behaviour you could possibly imagine. Hopefully, not even imagine because it was it was that bad. Um, so there I, I was translating at the time as well um and i was also taking the, the the minutes for the notes i wasn't conducting the interview somebody else was conducting it asking me what happened what happened to your family um how do you feel about the people who did this to you, those kind of things and it was one of one very intense and I'm, I'm sat there writing translating crying my eyes out trying to keep a straight face oh. um and the, these women are describing these 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 things that they've gone through um in order to, to to kind of let people know that this this is this is happening this is not normal uh we're, we're human just as much as everyone else and it's, it's other you know allegedly human beings that are doing this to us mm. and we need your help we need to raise awareness so we would take that footage then to specific entrepreneurs and businessmen and famous people to to then contribute big amounts of money towards a specific kind of relocation and and rehabilitation projects that we were doing it's still going on a lot of the projects um that was in bangladesh uh with the the, the rohingya that one um and it was harsh but violence has become such a a casual subject mm.
0: normalized
1: now, yeah yeah and that, that's how is that normal in any shape or form mm. you know why why would you why would you be comfortable with that concept yeah so hats off to you, you know you don't like that stuff good
0: <laughs> thank you i do what just, just made me think though you know at the minute obviously there's a um the refugee you know, people talking about refugees coming in because you know what's going on in afghanistan and obviously i've seen some awful things on Instagram comments about like you know don't be letting people into this country and and I mm. wonder if it is because i mean obviously there's other layers to it, but that's just made me think because violence is so normalized when we're seeing these pictures of other countries that are have got these horrendous wars going on, are we not as a, a people in in not just this country; other countries less likely to want to help because we we think that it's normal to have
1: this stuff going on. Normal in the sense that our perception of it is based on a screen.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know,
1: and a screen, you know, think about. Oh no, what was it? Oh yeah, there we go. A screen is is a, is a type of buffer, mm. and it's a type of uh, means of dehumanizing what you're seeing. And so there's not even a perception that these people are are, are real. It's like what I said about when I was there, seeing it firsthand. You know, you're seeing it happen to people. That, that you know, that, that, I mean, it's difficult to to kind of verbalize the feelings Mm. that you have when you witness it firsthand. But when you see it on screen, you're sitting on your sofa. You might have a drink next to you. You might be eating some food. You're warm. You're safe. You're satiated. There's nobody knocking on your door. There's nobody kind of shooting through your window. None of that stuff's happening. So, of course, you're going to be detached. You don't even have the ability to relate to what's being seen on your screen. It's mm-hmm. not real. And because it's not real, you can then react in a way that is, is completely inhuman and say, well, you know, they, don't, they shouldn't come here. It's like, you know, there may come a time. And this is what a lot of people are saying. And I, I've seen this in many, many traditions. You know, whether it's uh, I've, I've seen quotes from Native American chiefs I've seen quotes from Arabian mystics in in the Yemeni desert, in the Arabian peninsula. I've seen them in the northern parts of Morocco, in the Atlas Mountains, the Reef Mountains. I've heard of it in India. And all of them seem to be saying the same thing. There will come a time when the roles are reversed and that people who are doing the oppression will become the oppressed Mm. if they're not careful. Because what goes around inevitably comes around. Um, And Yeah, and then, but the way they say it, it's not a tit-for-tat kind of statement. They're saying that when it happens to you, we're going to help you, even though you've not helped us. And how amazing yeah. is that? And that's the only reason they're saying it. it says, and you know, there's one quote in particular, and you know, my memory is not as good as it was. It was one particular um, Native American chief from the 19th century, one of the famous ones. Um, but he said, you know, all of this will happen and you will have to come to us for help. And then maybe then you will realize that we are brothers. And that, oh. that's just, that's awesome, isn't it? Yeah. It's not that we're going to, we're going to insult you. We're going to, we're not going to, you know, help you. We're going to be brothers at that point, And we're going to mm-hmm. help you. And that, that, again, you see that mirrored in the other, in other civilizations that I've just mentioned. So when the the, the Arabians mention it, they say that we're going to help you. And there, there are known traditions, for example, in Yemen, um, And in what we refer to in Arabic as as the sham. Sham is what is, in modern day terms, sham comprises uh, Jordan, Syria, Iraq. So places, especially Syria and Iraq, where where there's a lot of turbulence, a lot of trouble. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's a known tradition there that there will come a time when they will be able to offer refuge to other people from the northern hemispheres who will be suffering for whatever reason. That's just their, their, their kind of tradition. And it's it's only emphasised because they know that they have to help, that they have to go out of their way to help those people who at one point weren't really necessarily helping them. And that that's that's beautiful. That's what you call human. That's what being exactly. human. Is. Yeah, it
0: really is. Then,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. And maybe then people realise that we are brothers, we're all sisters. You know, we're all yeah. kind of one you know human community. Yeah. Uh, and good things will you know, come about, because even in spite of all the, the kind of trouble that might be apparent at the time, there will still be a, a growth in humanity. Um, mm. Yes, sorry. So what was our topic originally? What were we talking about?
0: <laughs> um, I can't even remember. I <laughs> no, I'll I'll really enjoy that. And um, oh brings a bit of warmth into your heart, doesn't
1: it? Yeah, yeah, it really does. It really does. Reassurance. And it's needed. Yeah. And nowadays, it, there seems to be, an absence of reassurance on a on a mass scale, dude. Mm. Um, and so we, I was mentioning that, that the people I've interacted with, the ones who have gone through, that was it. That's why I was telling the story about the Rohingya in Bangladesh. I think because over the past month, I've, I've spoken to a lot of people, primarily women, who have undergone some sort of abuse at the hands of individuals who claim to be spiritually realised or guides of some sort. Mm. And they've fallen victim to, to, you know, kind of predatory advances. And they've been duped. And hearts have been completely and utterly broken because of that. And trauma has, has, has come about as well. Um, and, that, that, and that's just not unique to, to the, you know, the, the, the yoga community or the people associated with yoga. You see in all different types of traditions. Like uh, there's that documentary on Netflix, Bikram. The Bikram yeah. one, yeah. Bikram one. And that, that's just one example <laughs> of many things. And, you know, that, that, that has to be dealt with in some way shape or form and there mm. has to be a recognition of what it means to be um spiritual so the word spiritual is it's just a term that's that's kind of thrown about in 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 a very nonchalant kind of manner you know somebody who seeks value and meaning and purpose at a, a different level than the physical that's one way of understanding it but if, if you look at the, the traditions of spirituality regardless of where when in the world there's one commonality and it's the understanding that spirituality is the refining of your spiritual self and what does that mean you know in every single kind of culture historically that means that you just become a nice person that's it that's spirituality Mm, you know there's there's no you know there's no need for visions of higher realities and unseen realities Although that can happen, of course, you, you hear many different, the sutras we mentioned, the sutra has a whole section dedicated to that topic. Um, the Sufi tradition that, that I come from, I mean, there, there's this dude, so many stories, so many bizarre and strange stories. I've even undergone and, and lived some of these strange stories myself when I've travelled abroad and met with certain individuals. Um, but the point of spirituality is not that. The point is to make you a good spirit. That's it and and when you're not doing that I saw a quote from do you remember um Alex the Ashtanga teacher
0: yes yeah yeah,
1: yeah. she put something on her Instagram today I, I can't quote it verbatim but it was something on the lines of you can burn all the sage you want but if you're a twat you're still a twat <laughs>
0: <laughs> I also love that you said twat as well because <laughs>
1: it, it's quite a swear word yeah no it's not
0: yeah Oh, my word. Okay. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> I feel like we've came full circle.
1: <laughs> I never knew that. Uh, yeah. Okay, uh, well, for the listeners, I've, I've said a swear word. There you go. Run I, swear, I swear
0: don't. all the time, so it's fine. You
1: swear beautifully. I, I remember your classes.
0: <laughs> yeah, I do, I do swear in my, my classes, and then I, I think I've said, oh, God, so if I have not an offended anyone.
1: <laughs> you swore in front of my son once, do you remember? Oh,
0: <laughs> I just nearly went oh shit yeah. <laughs> I, did, I think it was shit I think I went shit and then I was like oh no sorry
1: <laughs> I remember he was there in you know on all his innocence and he just looked what was that sound from that woman's mouth what would you say
0: <laughs> it's always it's... my mum shouts at me a lot for swearing but it's I always say to her I'm just expressing myself it's just mm. how I I get my passion across
1: mm. yeah you're not yeah. swearing a Punjabi. That's that's a
0: good. Thing. No, no, I'm not doing it in an abusive way. I wouldn't swear at someone. It's always in a sentence about, um, something. Uh, <laughs> about something. Yeah, Um but yeah, that's so true. Like you can learn all the sage in the world. You can do me and me friends were saying or always saying this, but you, you can do all the yoga in the world, all the meditation in the world, read all the spiritual books, drink all the ayahuasca, and. <laughs> if you're still going out in the real world and i being a dickhead
1: yeah, what, yeah what's
0: the what's the point in all that and yeah I've it's interesting that you said that because I've I've heard from different women particularly well obviously from this city um who've experienced uh, some sort of trauma or at the hands of of spiritual teachers and mm. or yoga teachers and it's it, it is hard because it's meant. This practice is meant to be a safe space, and this is it. Yeah, the fact that it's being pet like penetrated by by darkness, yeah, is, is quite is quite worrying. And like you said, yeah, there does need to be something there does need to be something done about it. There
1: does. I mean, awareness is the first stage.
0: Yeah, definitely. The people I know who've experienced this type of stuff I haven't ever spoken up about it either which is
1: quite interesting. Uh, coincidentally, I was, I was speaking to a, a lady last night about this. And so mm-hmm. she was relaying her own kind of um, experiences uh, at the hands of a, uh, an individual. And he's a known individual, um, but mm-hmm. there's no need to n- name names at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that will come out when it needs to come out. But um, she was saying that for, for a good year or so. She, she, she didn't know what to do. She had no one to speak to. Uh, And because of the the, the kind of so-called standing of this individual within the the circles that she was associated with, she felt almost ashamed. Like she was doing something wrong as opposed to him. And she knew he was the one who was doing the wrong, but she felt as if if she was to come out and then quote unquote expose him, that she would be at fault. And even though she knew rationally, that made no sense whatsoever. That's how she felt. And yeah. that, that prevented her from taking any positive action or taking a, a means of escape whenever it presented her. But you know, she has escaped now. She's she's completely severed him. Um she's she's having nothing to do with him. Um and un- unfortunately, she's she's also come across several other people who have who have um who have been uh, treated in similar manners to by this this particular person. But it's I, I, I do worry about it because I've I've seen the signs within. Not just the yoga community, I've seen it in my own community as well, you know, the, the mm. kind of uh, amongst the, the Sufis and then you, you hear other things about other religious or so-called religious communities, and then the same thing happens. And that's why you can see why, why people have almost like a, a dismissive attitude towards anything that's vaguely spiritual. Because if all this abuse is, is happening, where's the safe space? Where do you go? Who do you go to? Mm. Uh, who can you trust? Um, it's, it's a fascinating affairs because there are good people out there I mean, yourself, your, your inner voice workshops that's a safe space, people can go to you they can sit with you they can benefit from whatever you give them the lights that become apparent from the, 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 the dynamic between you and whoever comes to you and that, that's, that's what you call benefits that's what you call um, the, the definition of light in, in, in our tradition is um, it makes the known become unknown and, and people who are, are spiritually inclined or spiritual leaders or guides in any way, shape or form, what they are supposed to be are lights. They make the unknown become known in the sense that they help that person know more about themselves and become content with whatever they are. Because it's not about transforming the person into something they aren't. It's about making them realize what they are. And there's such a key difference in those two concepts. Um, and I've noticed that a lot of these these kind of pseudo-spiritual guides their emphasis is on you know you you can become this you can experience these types of unseen things and have visions and then you know we can connect and then the abuse begins and then the Mm. person becomes entrapped almost it's it's horrible it's horrible I mean even as a yoga teacher sometimes I feel like a I I'm mean, I'm, I'm treading on eggs. Is that the, is the phrase? Eggshells.
0: Eggs. Yeah, Classy. yeah.
1: Because you can see people, you can always, I mean, I've, because I've studied this, this kind of uh, means of, of reading people's personalities, um, you can see when people are being defensive because of those types of experiences. And I, I see them a lot in yoga classes. They come in, and when, when they see a man at the front, remember we had this conversation when, when you first kind of put me forward for, for aerial yoga. That mm. was that was one of my concerns. I didn't want to be um, somebody who would cause another individual to feel unsafe in a space which is dedicated to healing. Yeah. Um. And I still think it might be a bit of an issue because there's there's, there's a lot of examples of men in particular. It's not just men, but men in particular who are abusing their positions. Or yeah. Where people of vulnerability go to them, it's 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 not good.
0: No. And I do. I, for you as a teacher, I don't think you should let that stop you from from doing your work because you are so meant to do this this job, and you've got such a a gift to share. So, I do think it is down to because I know personally, if I go to a class and there is a man teaching, or if I've been to like you know plant medicine ceremonies or you know any type of workshop and it's a man leading it, I instantly feel uncomfortable.
1: Mm, from, that's my point
0: yeah whereas that's on that's on me that's not on the teacher that that's my own because of my own life experiences yeah so what something I I am really working on is when I am this is really for anyone listening if you know this is resonating and you're thinking oh yeah I have going go to, into male teachers because there are amazing male teachers out there like yourself <laughs> who deserve the who deserve people to to be there and um, what I try and do is when I am in them spaces feeling and this is men and women this isn't just male teachers feel into the teacher's energy or the person who's holding the space mm. and if something feels off then they're not the teacher who's meant for you and it doesn't yeah. matter what the reasonings are but you've really got to tune in and and see, like I went to a, a ceremony, a Cambo ceremony last year. Yeah. And I didn't know I, I think I knew it was a, it was a man leading. And, and I was a little bit like Ooh, a little bit like in my own head. And when yeah, I got yeah. like when we got there and we sat down and like I instantly felt safe. I instantly felt like oh okay, I can relax around this man. Like he, he seems nice. And when he did yeah. the I don't know if you're familiar with Cambo. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: The um when he, he was like, Oh, kind of take your leg to do the little the little burns before he puts the the front. Okay? Well he was like kind of can I put can you put your leg on like on his knee? And I was mm. like eh, yeah. I just said I was like yeah and in my own head thinking oh Jesus Christ don't really want it <laughs> and then as soon as I put my leg on his I was like oh, oh I feel feels again safe and it mm. instantly felt okay. So did I think it is definitely tuning in to your own body and notice noticing if you feel
1: if the energy feels off yeah yeah and everyone does have that ability to a lesser or greater extent and that's part mm. and parcel of being human isn't it mm. that instinctual awareness of where you are and who you're with and what yeah. kind of energies are in the room i mean it's, it's uh, again it can be people can tend to ignore those things sometimes mm. and yeah. rationality is, is somewhat overrated you know, rationality is there as a tool to be utilized by the heart. That, that's how we were taught. That's how, you know, Patanjali in his sutras, he emphasizes a similar kind of principle. Um, it's not there to lead. Rationality isn't there to lead your life. It's there to, you know, be led and to enable you to, to understand things better. But it won't bring you to the highest point of realization or a higher state of awareness and existence. That's what your heart is there for. That's why the yeah. spirituality are not intellectual pursuits.
0: yeah no it makes sense because i know you know i've had you know friends or other students talk about you know particular teachers who you know are well known in in the yoga world and have you know got a really um big following and they've made comments of oh i don't know how i feel about them or i'm not really sure but then they continue to go back and and work with the yeah and i think it is because of that old you've got a big following or they've you know they have all of these classes or they do all of this stuff so they must be good so my feet and, and it's dismissing your own feelings
1: it is yeah yeah and again that's bringing rationality into it and yeah yeah of conformity as well um, mm. you know the, the group mentality is a very um, difficult thing to overcome yeah. so one of the things we, we looked at in um, in my master's was uh the, the concept of what's it called conformity so there's a, there's a classical example of a chap called, what was his name? Was it Ash or Sharif? It was either Ash or Sharif, an um, old psychologist from the 1930s. So he staged this experiment. You may or may not have heard of it. Um, so there's one person who's a volunteer and he's put into a room full of other volunteers. But what he doesn't know or she doesn't know is all the other so-called volunteers or stooges, they're in on the experiment. So they're the only volunteer in reality in that room. So it's usually about five, maybe six people. And the actual volunteer is put around fourth in this line of people. Um, And so they're presented with an image and the image is of four lines of various different lengths. Um, And then the the question will be posed, how similar are the length of the lines? Are they similar or not similar? Put your hand up if you think it's similar. And so the beginning of this experiment is always people will answer honestly. So if it was similar, all of them will say, yep, put their hands up, similar. And if it wasn't similar, they would put their hands up and say, no, it's not similar. And then about halfway through the experiment, what happens is the stooges change their answer to what's blatantly not the case. (laughs) And then they see what happens to uh, the actual volunteer. And there's footage of it as well. It's so funny. You can watch it. There's a kind of confused expression on their face. So there's these four lines, all of various different lengths that aren't in any way similar. And so, you know, person, stooge number one says, yeah, that's similar. Stooge number two, similar. Stooge number three, similar. Volunteer who's number four remember and he or she they there going no it's dissimilar and they're the only one mm. and then after maybe three or four attempts or three or four kind of uh, um, occurrences of this they will change their answer to conform to the group always wow uh, yeah so conformity is a, is an extremely powerful kind of um influential aspect of our 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 day-to-day interaction with everything you know so if, if a lot of people are going to certain individuals you yeah, know, it's easy to think, well, it must be good. You know, numbers don't lie. But numbers mm. can lie. You know, a lot of people followed bad people historically. I mean, to put an extreme example, you know, it was Hitler wasn't so good, was he?
0: I, I was thinking, <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking, I'm not going to say it, but...
1: <laughs> say it, man, say it. No, okay, but it's
0: so... true, it's true, isn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah, you know, so, you know, you have to be careful. It's like, I, you know, um, was it a couple of weeks ago, I, I, I did a little philosophy talk in um the yoga festival in oh, I wish I'd have seen that. Oh what was the place called? Somewhere in Anfield. Oh um, uh, in really nice.
0: the not um the Isle of Gladstone.
1: Yes, that's the one. That's the yeah one. never seen that place before. Amazing.
0: Beautiful. It's gorgeous isn't it?
1: It is, it is. And the, the, the atmosphere of the people there was it was good with one or two exceptions of course, you know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> related to what we were discussing before. Um but anyway. <laughs> Uh so I my talk was on 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 it was quite vague, it was supposed to be on philosophy and spirituality. So I thought I'd focus on on two particular parts, because that's a vast subject, right? Philosophy mm. and spirituality. What where do you draw the line? And you know me, if, if I was given free reign, I just talk myself to death. Keep going. Um so I thought I'd talk about satya, truth, and certainty. So satya define what truth, what what is truth? Um, how long have we got by the way? I mean.
0: I mean we can we can go for another 15 20
1: minutes okay let me end with another story cool. so let's let's end with a story so this story this is a story that i told so this <laughs> is a story from the the bhagavad-gita um so for, for those unfamiliar with that text it's it's the main kind of um religious text in the hindu tradition you could say equivalent to the bible but it's it's a bit different in some ways because there are other books as well um but it's certainly the biggest one it's the most famous one <clears throat> um so, the entire Gita is essentially a dialogue between uh, a chap Krishna and his disciple Arjuna, or Arjuna, depending on the dialectical kind of pronunciation. Um, and it's taking place on a battlefield. And the battlefield is, is uh, comprised of two major armies, one representing primordial good and the other one representing primordial evil. And Arjuna is, of course, on the side of the good, and Krishna is his charioteer. He's not taking part in the war, but he's helping Arjun fight. With and Arjun one of the main princes or generals or lieutenants. I, I forget the term in English, in the war. His older brother is the king, um, and he's leading the efforts against the evil side. The evil side, however, is comprised of family members of Arjun. They're his uncles, cousins, you know, relatives, his spiritual teachers on that, on that side as well. So he's in a dilemma. He's in this kind of ethical pickle. And the dialogue takes place because he wants to reconcile his dharm, his duty, and his karam, his, his kind of consequential um, actions with what's taking place. Is it right to go to war against your loved ones or not? In spite of the situation, in spite of the good and evil kind of um, implications. And so this dialogue takes place. That's the Gita. And then the, the, the story goes on to the actual war taking place. And so the war, as we said, between good and evil, and it's been led by Arjun's older brother, a chap Yudhishth. And Yudhishth is an um, interesting fellow, right? So, uh, Yudhishth is, is one of five brothers. Arjun is the third brother. You've got Beam, the second brother, Nakul, Sahadev, the two younger brothers. And each of the five represents a type of virtue. So, Yudhishth is all about truth, um, and Beam is all about strength. Arjun is all about kind of a chivalry and the warrior way knuckles i also get what they represent but i'm sure it's something good right <laughs> um but our our focus here is yudish so yudish is so truthful he's never ever ever spoken a lie, according to legend just couldn't possibly conceive of speaking something that wasn't true it wasn't his way and there were reasons for that but just he's represented absolute truth and honesty and he was so pious and so truthful they say his feet never actually touch the ground. He would float from place to place, almost like an angelic being by virtue of his virtue. Um, and when the war takes place, Krishna advises Yudhishthya that, you know, war is by its nature not a pleasant experience. And war can be deception. It can be trickery, but it's for a greater good. This is a dharma, you know, duty. You have to engage in that in order to remove certain evils um, when all else is exhausted. This is the only recourse that we can take in order to remove the evil from the people. And so, you know, he reminds this from time to time. They've got a problem, however. They can't win because on the opposing army, if you remember, I mentioned there was a spiritual teacher of all five brothers, including Arjun Yudhishth. And his name is a, he's a, he's a dude, man. His name is Dronacharya and he's, he's a quintessential kind of um, yogi mystic type figure. Um, you know a warrior in every sense of the word but he's not a warrior in in his in his lifestyle he's a sage he's a brahmin um so he's he's one of the kind of spiritual leaders of the region spiritual sages that's probably a better term and he taught the art of warfare to these princes but for whatever reason and there's a backstory which i won't go into he's ended up on the wrong side out of a sense of duty um but they can't beat him so long as he's there this army cannot be defeated so they gather one evening because the war takes place day to day. They don't fight at nighttime. And so Krishna starts to advise says there's only one weakness that Dronacharya has and it's love. So you know Yudhishthira looks at him and says, well, what do you mean? He goes, the love of his son, Ashwatthama. And Ashwatthama was, was somebody who's like a spiritual brother to them. And so they all start listening. And Krishna says, the only way you're going to remove Dronacharya is by killing Ashwatthama. And they're like, we can't do that. So Krishna smiles and he goes, I'm not talking about Ashwatthama, the man. There's an elephant in the army who's also called Ashwatthama. He says, what you should do is kill the elephant and then proclaim on the battlefield Ashwatthama is dead. And then Dronacharya will cease to want to fight. He will lay down his weapons and you will be able to remove him from the situation. And so Yudhishthira says, I can't do that. That's deception. He goes, yes, but you're not lying. But then they go around in circles a few times. He goes, well, how can I do that? It's, it is deception. Whether you call it a truth or not, it's still deception. So Krishna, you know, you've got to know Krishna's role as a, as a guide. He's one of the deities within Hindu traditions as well. And even amongst the Sufis, he's acknowledged as a, as a, as a man of wisdom. So we take our wisdoms from him uh, as and when we can. And this is one of the wisdoms that's actually repeated by a lot of Sufis because we relate to it in a, in a similar way. And so eventually he convinces this to agree, to allow it to be done. And so the next day arrives, and then the younger brother, um, the second brother of the five, so Yudhishthira, beam, remember, the, 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 the paragon of strength, huge fellow, massive, and legend has it he was seven and a half foot tall, he was, he was this huge beast of a man. So he walks around the battlefield looking for this elephant called Ashwatthama. finds Ashwatthama, kills the elephant, poor elephant, you know, needs most, that's what they say. And so then he starts to run around the battlefield celebrating. And he had a, quite a stentorian voice, a very powerful voice. And so he started to say, Ashwatthama is dead. I've killed Ashwatthama. And so the army starts to hear. And then word very, very quickly gets back to Dramacharya. And he hears Ashwatthama is dead. There's being being can't kill Ashwatthama. He wouldn't do that. They're brothers, spiritual brothers. They grew up together. And he goes, something's afoot here. He didn't quite trust what Beam was saying. So what does he do? He decides to go to Yudish. So he, he he works his way around the back of the armies and goes to the camp of Yudhishth, where Yudhishth is directing his forces. And there's a parley made, so no harm is done to draw a chariot up. And he goes straight to the king, and he goes, Yudhishth, he goes, I've heard a strange thing. And he goes, I've heard that your brother has killed Ashwatthama. Is this true? So Yudhishth is in a bit of a pickle, and he puts his head down, takes a moment, looks up. And he goes, and I'll I'll translate almost verbatim. Um, He goes, whether man or beast, I know for certain. Ashwatthama is dead. And so Drona Shari at that point believes his son is dead. That's what he's taken from that statement. Mm. He goes outside and they say he had his bow on his back. He takes off his bow, gently lays it down on the ground, takes off his sword, lays it down on the ground, and then he sits on the earth and closes his eyes into a deep state of meditation to mourn the loss of his son. And then there's another fella in the army who had his own vendetta against Duranacharya. Another story, another scenario, but we won't go into that, but he sees Duranacharya defenseless and he takes the opportunity to assassinate Duranacharya at that point. Unfortunately, that didn't need to happen, but that's not our story. So we won't go into that, but he kills him. And then by virtue of that deception, they, they win the war eventually. But the important kind of point here is Judishra, as soon as he uttered the words Dronacharya just waited and seen this, he might have hesitated. They say that his feet, which were, you know, hovering above the earth due to his piety, they land on the earth. And then they say he he had to walk like a normal human being for the rest of his life. So the reason for mentioning this, we, we studied this in um in, in my philosophy degree as well. We did a module and I wrote an essay on this particular topic. And it's like, well what does that mean one was he right to do what he did two when his feet descended down to the earth was that a good thing or was that because he did something bad and so this discussion ensued so in modern philosophy there's this, a philosophy of language there's this theory called the Christine theory of language and um, he calls this a conversational implicature which is where you you can tell somebody a truth but deceive them, and there are reasons for that and the reason is what defines that scenario as good or other than good. And so when we take it from that particular perspective, we can say, as a lot of sages have said, and with with certainty, that he did the right thing. And his feet landing on the earth actually showed that he did the right thing. Why? Because when he was in that state of, of absolute truthfulness, he was detached from the earth. And he was detached from the people he was supposed to be helping to protect, lead, and essentially serve as a leader. And when his feet landed on the earth, he'd finally connected to the people he was supposed to be helping. And his, his state, his, his heart actually increased and ascended as a consequence of that. Even though physically it might have seemed like a dissension, spiritually it was an absolute ascension. And so it was the right thing to do because he, by doing that, he'd helped billions of people. Ever since mm. uh, that's the that's the idea, but it's it's it's, mm, it's dodgy ground, isn't it? Dodgy ground. I'm not saying you, know, you should employ people. Do politicians use this conversational implicature all the time? I Whenever they you know they're asked a question and they just skirt around the question. No, they? they imply answers. They're not really straight. They're not very good at it. That's basically why. <laughs> um.
0: <laughs> wow. Yeah. No. That that is so interesting because. I'm I'm trying to think if there's any instances in my life where I've had to make a decision like that, but I don't think I have. Not on that that scale, anyway. I'm not a politician.
1: (laughs) No, 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 nor should you be. It's like with children. Sometimes you have to tell, like... um...
0: Yeah, like little white lies.
1: Well, it's not a lie, is
0: it? It's not a lie, but, like, skating around the the,
1: the truth
0: to to protect them.
1: And that's the point. You're protecting them. Yeah. are protecting them. And so long yeah. as you, you've got that good intention, that's what it comes down to. And that was yeah. the kind of purpose of the, the talk good intentions.
0: Mm. Um,
1: then, then you're right. And yeah. I always say, a big beginning of my class, for those people who go to my classes, I get sick of saying it, but I say it every time. You know, a good intention uh, or an intention to an action is like the spirit to the body, it gives it life, value, meaning, or purpose. So make a good intention and you will have a good spirit.
0: Oh, mm. that's beautiful
1: yeah yeah well, that, that's a good way to kind of conclude as well as this it?
0: yeah definitely well i was going to ask you if there's anything you want to share with someone who's just like starting out on the spiritual journey but do you feel like a, in, that is a good intention
1: it's all about intention it's all about mm. intention what, what do you want you know what mm. do you want to achieve and the intention isn't necessarily static you start off with an intention which is as good as you can possibly make it whatever that means to you and then as you move through realising that intention, actualizing that intention through your action, it might change. And that's OK. Change it mm. to something which is also good, which will take you further. Um, and trust that, that instinct. Really do trust your heart. And the heart is a very powerful entity. And if you're not listening to your heart, then, you know, learn, learn. And when I say listen to your heart, I literally, how do you feel? about x y and z that's what listening means in relation to the heart
0: yeah i i agree i agree that's what i my daily practices is, is what does this feel like what does that feel like
1: yeah in a voice right
0: yeah same thing the essence yeah. is there the essence is the same
1: the essence is the same absolutely
0: mm. Mm. well thank you very much rona for sharing all your lovely wisdom and stories i could listen to you till the whole day <laughs> um for anyone who does live in liverpool and would like to come to your classes where can they find you
1: um so most of my classes are actually cover classes um most of them uh, I, I find myself teaching maybe three or four times a week but i mean in terms of static permanent classes or semi-permanent i suppose nothing's permanent um tuesday <laughs> evening <laughs> quarter past six uh, yoga for the people um, uh, it's a very small class but again I'm there um, and Saturdays at Liverpool Yoga Studios quarter past ten I'm teaching aerial Yoga which was formerly your class of course it
0: was uh,
1: it was and it was an awesome class it's not as good as your class but I'm certainly trying my best I it, bet it's
0: better
1: than mine no dude come on seriously <laughs> I mean your classes were the highlight of my week I I, I, oh. I so many things to make sure I got to your class every week seriously oh, apart from oh. that time when I injured myself you know that, that was out of my hands oh,
0: Yes, that still scars me for life and I wasn't even there.
1: <laughs> was that your question? I injured myself. It,
0: it wasn't. I think it was in other hammocks.
1: It was other hammocks, wasn't
0: it? Yeah. yeah. Um, for those
1: listening, I fractured my wrist falling out of the hammock and that's the only time I've ever seen anything happen. In <laughs> but...
0: Come to aerial yoga. I remember that time I broke my wrist by out. Was... <laughs> yeah, I've never, ever seen anyone hurt themselves in the hammock and I taught it for four years maybe.
1: Three. Remember that girl that face planted? She didn't hurt herself, but I think oh, so. yeah. her ego got
0: hurt. Yeah, yeah I think odd. her ego got hurt. <laughs> I mean, our fast is in a hammock in front of everyone, so, you know... Yeah, I was next to you. Fun, yeah, fun things happen in that. <laughs> <physics. laughs> <laughs> if you do want to try your aerial yoga, do you go to Romanax Passes? They are very fun. Um, yeah, thank you so much. And what's your Instagram handle for anyone if they want to see some ah, of your lovely uh, words?
1: A poetic human.
0: Is it, is it all one, or have you got an underscore a in underscore
1: there? underscore poetic underscore yogi. I
0: thought it was. That's why I didn't
1: want to um, ah. butcher it. <laughs> no. Uh, and you'll see a little black-white and picture of one of my spiritual teachers um, as a younger man. That, I've never told anyone that, but try and guess which one he is, if you do see. On
0: your Actually, feed?
1: Kind of, on on my actual profile picture. It's, it's one of my teachers. Okay.
0: I'm going to as have a look at that in a minute.
1: And it's not done <laughs> randomly. I, I I did it very purposefully because he he is the driving force behind everything in my life. Um, and he's he's still alive. He's very old. But he's he's very beautiful, very blessed, um, and very much a father to him. Yeah. Well,
0: thank you very much, Rona. It has been an honor to
1: welcome. you. No, it's been awesome, and it's always nice to catch up with you. I miss you. Man. I
0: know we need to make it more more regular. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Journey. If you did enjoy the episode and you want to hear more, please subscribe and leave us a review. It helps us reach more people. The next episode of The Journey is going to be all about money and your money story. So if you have a lot of ideas or a lot of fear around money, then this episode is going to be good for you. I also want to say thank you to my friend, Nathan, who has created the most amazing intro for the podcast. I sent him (laughs) loads of different ideas and he's got exactly what I wanted. So I will leave you with the most amazing music. Have a little boogie, have a little dance and enjoy sending you so much peace and love on your journey.